Last week, Pastor Steve gave us another wonderful message from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul was writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. As Timothy was facing great change in his life in leading and instructing a church in the city of Ephesus. To encourage his young friend and brother in Christ and son in Christ, Paul secured the anchor of the inspired letter of 1 Timothy to Timothy's life and gave him very basic, practical advice through the Holy Spirit on how to remain faithful during difficult times. He urged Timothy to pray, especially for leaders, so that the Christians at Ephesus could lead a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul reminded Timothy that in everything he does, to keep his gaze firmly fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one mediator between men and God. I don't know about you, but on top of a host of other things, the word of God has become so much more precious to me over the past very difficult year. Let's hold one another up in prayer as Pastor Steve encouraged us, and take our comfort in the word the Lord has written to us. This is not normally how I proceed from this point, but I received a message from a lady down in Colorado, and she told me how Psalm 37 has been her anchor over the past year. I would like to read that psalm for you now, before we get into today's message. And I want us not to be pushing that psalm way out there this morning. I want us to bring this psalm right into our lives today. This is the word of God. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, 
but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastors. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. What a beautiful, beautiful psalm. So where are we in our study of the book of Nehemiah? Two weeks ago, we completed chapter 10, which 
lays out obligations the Jews took upon themselves in their written covenant. These obligations can be roughly organized into three major themes. One, marriage obligations. Two, financial obligations. And three, religious obligations. The Jews who drafted this covenant and sealed their names to it appeared to have been keenly aware that these were the three areas in which they had failed, even since their release from Babylonian captivity. And they desired to strengthen their commitment in those areas. And we will see how well that worked over in chapter 13. I concluded with a challenge to each one of us to reflect on our own commitments to our Lord Jesus Christ, to see where we may have slipped or stumbled or become complacent, as did some who received the letters early in the book of Revelation, and open the door of our lives once again to the gentle but persistent tapping of Jesus, who desires to enter in and sup with us. Today's chapter, chapter 11, is similar to chapter 10 in that it consists mostly of a list of names or a registry of the Jews who were to dwell in Jerusalem and others that were to dwell in the land of Judea surrounding the holy city. But there are some principles, particularly in the first few verses, that we can spend a little time reflecting on. So let's go ahead and read a very abbreviated version of chapter 11 of Nehemiah. Bear with me, I did shorten my message today because I knew the reading at the beginning would be longer. So it is a brief message. We are almost exclusively looking at the first two verses of chapter 11. But let's read um, uh, sort of an abbreviated version of chapter 11, and then we will get into today's message. I've titled today's message, The Holy City Revived. This is the word of God. Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. These are the heads of the province who dwelt in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah, everyone dwelt in his own possession in their cities, Israelites, priests, Levites, Nethanim, and descendants of Solomon's servants. Also, in Jerusalem dwelt some of the children of Judah and of the children of Benjamin. The children of Judah, and it goes on to list the children of Judah to the end of verse 6. And these are the sons of Benjamin, it continues to say, and it lists the sons of Benjamin to the end of verse 9. Of the priests, and it lists many of the priests all the way to the end of verse 14. Also, of the Levites, and it lists their names to the end of verse 18. So verse 19, moreover, the gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their brethren who kept the gates were 172. And the rest of Israel, of the priests and Levites, were in all the cities of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the Nethanim dwelt in Ophel. Then in verse 23, it says, it was the king's command concerning the singers 
that a certain portion should be for the singers, a quota day by day. And verse 25 says, And as for the villages with their fields, some of the children of Judah dwelt in Kirjath Arba, and it lists some other places where they were dwelling. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have been so good to us. And as we are dwelling through what many of us feel um, a dark cloud of oppression over ourselves, as, as we are dwelling through these times, we find it difficult not knowing what is to come. But we are not unique in this. You have given us the end of the story and a wonderful victory in Christ, his death on the cross and resurrection, and our resurrections at the end of the story to dwell with you forever, all tears and pain gone. And yet we're looking at the days and weeks to come, and we just don't know what to expect. So we ask that your spirit would do a mighty work in our hearts to increase our faith, to draw closer to you as we walk through these days, trusting you, as Psalm 37 says, to take care of us. Help us to be recommitted and more fully committed to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning, open our eyes to the truth of your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I, um, you'll notice that I, I had to mention verse 23. Singers. For the Jews and faithful Christians throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, music has been an indispensable part of worship. We need to sing. Amen. We must Worship the Lord in song. So I encourage you folks, when you're at home with your family, find some music, put it on, sing. There's beautiful, there's beautiful things on YouTube where you can just turn on these hymns and people are singing and they have the words on the screen, sing. Enjoy the beauty of music. Beauty is a reflection of God's holiness. We've forgotten that in today's society. We have not forgotten that as Christians. Beauty is a reflection of God's holiness. When you see a beautiful sunset, for the Christian that says, God is holy. When you hear a beautiful piece of music, as a Christian you say, God is holy. When you see a beautiful painting, someone representing some truth that grips you, you look at that and you say, God is holy. And when you wipe those things out of your life, you lose touch with the holiness of God. I encourage you folks, sing. Enjoy music. Belt it out, especially if you're all alone. Then you can sing completely out of tune and nobody cares. The Lord hears your cry. <laughs> But I wanted to bring that up to begin with today. Those who will live in Jerusalem. It says off the beginning of our passage today that the leaders were to dwell in Jerusalem. All of Jewish life from this point to 70 AD when the temple was destroyed was going to revolve around temple worship in Jerusalem. 
The city and the province of Judea had political leaders as well, but their authority would only be sustained so long as they supported the real leaders. The religious and moral leaders of the people were the priests and the Levites, and it was the job of the governor to accommodate a society in which people could worship God and live their lives around the law of Moses. And you think this 2,500-year-old text doesn't apply to us today? Where does authority come from? God and God alone. If you're a person under God in authority in any way, you will answer before God one day as to how well you governed according to the word of God. Since that time, the temple was in the city of Jerusalem. It was only natural that the leaders position themselves near the temple. All of Jewish life revolved around temple life. Now, if we would like to draw some New Testament principles around this idea, let's look at several eye-opening passages from the New Testament scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul asks and answers the following question. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Later on in his second epistle to the same Corinthian church, in chapter 6, verse 16, the apostle continues with this thought. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul takes this one step further in his epistle to the Ephesian church in chapter 2 verses 19 through 22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. How can this make sense? How can we be a temple and a living stone which makes up the temple built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ? Jesus himself ties it all together in his words in John chapter 2 verses 19 through 22. The Pharisees were confronting him Again, giving him a hard time. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, 
And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. When we place our trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, we become so intimately linked to his life that we are said to be one with him and one with each other. Listen to these almost unfathomable words of Christ in his high priestly prayer recorded in John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. Jesus is praying for his disciples, and that prayer, he says explicitly, extends to all that believe the message that they gave. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me, folks. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Can you wrap your mind around those words? God the Father loves you just as he loved Jesus Christ. We cannot fathom how he could love such a worm as I. But he said so. Jesus loves me, this I know. Not because I'm so good and not because I feel loved all the time, but because the Bible tells me so. I've said all that, that to say this. If we as believers in Jesus Christ are to be leaders, salt and light in a dark world, we must dwell near the temple, our heavenly temple, the Lord Jesus Christ and his body, the church. It is in his life that we have power. Not in ourselves as the messenger, but because the message of the gospel has power. The power of Almighty God unleashed on the whole world through the cross. Lots were cast to see who would live in the city. It wasn't enough to see the city walls rebuilt and the beginning of spiritual renewal of the people of Jerusalem. Now it was time to get more people into the city. For a city to prosper and be great, it must be populated. For more than 70 years, Jerusalem had been nothing but a ghost town. Now, over the last 80 or so years, it was beginning to be repopulated with a new temple built under Ezra and walls rebuilt under Nehemiah, but now the city needed more people. 
With our modern sensibilities, it is difficult to understand the significance of the casting of lots to the ancient Near Eastern Jewish mind. So let's take a moment to reflect on this. Beginning way back in Leviticus chapter 16, Aaron was instructed to cast lots on the Day of Atonement, which is the highest Jewish holy day, to determine from two goats which one was to be sacrificed and which one was to be led out to the wilderness, figuratively carrying the sins of the whole nation away. Now, we don't know what it looked like when the Jews cast lots. What we do know is that it was, it was like a drawing of straws or something that sort of gave a yes and no answer, something like that. The casting of lots was not random in their minds like we might think or feel. This was to them giving to the God who controls all things the unimpeded decision of selection. They were not choosing which goat died and which goat lived. God was, and God alone. A little later on, as the tribes of Israel were to decide where in the promised land they would dwell, they made this decision once again by casting lots. There was no bickering or fighting about who dwelt where. God would decide, and God alone. Where your lot fell, that's where you would dwell. Interestingly, if you look back at the prophecies of um, Jacob, you will see that um, in his prophetic words just before he died, he had given some hints as to where the different tribes would dwell. And when they cast lots, sure enough, God agreed with God once again. This practice of casting lots continues through the Old Testament and into the New. John the Baptist's father was chosen by lot to be the one to minister before the Lord when the angel met him in the holy place to announce the birth of his son, who would be a mighty prophet. The fact that the lot fell to John's father at that time was no matter of luck. God used the lot in this case to select this man for this day, and the Jews knew it. There was no concept of luck when lots were cast. Later on, when the apostles of Christ needed to select another to join their number to make 12, they did so by the casting of lots between Joseph and Matthias, and Matthias was chosen. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 probably sums it up best. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So I've said all that to say this. When the Jews cast lots to determine who was to live in Jerusalem, this was no matter of blind luck or some game of chance. God himself was choosing who would live in the holy city. Friends, I believe in free will. I believe each individual is charged with the responsibility of choosing or rejecting Christ for him or herself and will reap the consequences of their decision. But this takes nothing away from the clear teaching of Scripture that if you trust Christ, 
God has personally hand-selected you to be his adopted child. Jesus himself said in chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not random chance or blind luck that has brought you there. God chose you to be his beloved child, and he has a plan and a purpose for doing so. Furthermore, if you feel the tug of the message of the gospel on your heart, it means that God himself has sent his spirit to draw you out of sin, shame, and death into forgiveness, holiness, and life. Pay heed to Christ's gentle hand, and by faith place your trust in him. The lot was cast, and God used it to select you to be his child as well. You must simply trust him. You'll notice that there was a tithe of persons chosen. What do I mean by that? Tithe, a tenth. We often hear this snippet of a phrase, tithes and offerings. Bring your tithes and offerings. We've, we've heard that, right? It, it, those two words seem to go together, tithes and offerings. The tithe was the required amount that every Jewish person was to give. The offering was that amount over and above the tithe given freely and cheerfully. For some of us, the word tithe means simply any amount given to the church. But the tithe was always the portion given back to God. Tithe means one-tenth, ten percent. The tithe is the sacred amount. It is holy and is not to be tampered with. The tithe is God's. What the Jews did with the leftover nine-tenths was up to them as stewards of God, but the tithe was God's. Way back in Genesis 14, Abraham, Abraham had just been given a decisive victory over evil men that had plundered and taken away his nephew Lot and his family and their belongings. Upon freeing Lot and recapturing all of Lot's goods and family, Abraham returns home and on the way encounters a man the Bible calls the priest of God Most High, the king of Salem, Melchizedek. There, Abraham offers him a tithe of all. That event seemed to institute the idea that a sacred tenth of all is to be returned to God who gives all to men. Even though the New Testament says nothing about a tithe requirement for Christians, Paul does say the following about God's sacred ownership, including, I might add this morning, his sacred ownership of Pastor James Coates and his wife Aaron and their children. Speaking to believers, Paul writes of God's sacred ownership. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone 
and I mean anyone, defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. The temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And now Paul, as he's writing, he changes and he begins to address others. Here he's saying, do you not know that you are the temple of God? And then he changes his address to others because he starts talking in the third person, him or her rather than you. He says this, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. Then he changes again. Now he's going back to addressing believers. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. These men and women in today's passage from Nehemiah chapter 11 that were part of the tithe of persons that were to dwell in Jerusalem were not just any 10%. They were gods. They were sacred. They were set apart. They were holy. They were not to be messed with. You mess with them, you mess with God. That's verse 1. Verse 2. Some willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. These men had a special blessing. The obvious sense we get from this passage is that dwelling in the city was going to have its measure of hardship over and above that which those outside the city might experience. Here's what I might say to that. It's not always easy to be a Christian. The very nature of Christianity is countercultural, particularly when the culture is one of darkness. When a Christian stands up and says, abortion is murder, we are ridiculed by a culture of darkness and those that dwell in it. When a Christian boldly claims that churches are essential, the world looks at us sideways like we have lost our minds. When we condemn perverted sexual practice, infidelity, pornography, drug use, socialism, relativism, corruption, and debauchery, we are hopelessly out of touch with the mainstream culture of darkness. But we voluntarily take on this burden. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 24, Jesus said the following words. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me 
before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. Living in Jerusalem would require change. To live in Jerusalem, you had to reorder your view of material things. You had to give up your land in your previous region and take up some kind of new business. You had to rearrange your social priorities, certainly leaving some friends and family behind. You had to have a mind to endure the problems in the city. It had been a ghost town for 70 years, and it was now basically a slightly rebuilt, somewhat repopulated ghost town. The city didn't look all that glorious, and it needed work. You had to live knowing you were a target for the enemy. There were strong walls to protect you, but since Jerusalem was now a notable city with rebuilt walls, the fear was more from whole armies than it was from bands of robbers. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Some people don't want to be citizens of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, for the same reasons many didn't want to be citizens of Nehemiah's Jerusalem. But friends, it will be more than worth it. Let's close by allowing God to open the eyes of our spirits to look at the new Jerusalem, where the followers of Christ, you and me, will dwell forever and ever. This is the word of God. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. 
He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The construction of its wall was of jasper and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Be sure your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Because... The future is an unimaginable glory for those that place themselves into the loving hands of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is good to open your word and reflect on the words that you have given to us. It is good for us. It lifts us up. It convicts us. It draws us to Jesus Christ. It gives us hope. It gives us joy. It gives us pain of the most wonderful kind. I pray this morning that each person that has encountered the words of God this morning through this sermon would be impacted in an incredible way by your spirit giving the message of the gospel to our hearts. I pray for our leaders that you would begin to soften the hardened hearts of those that are walking contrary to your word. And for those like Pharaoh who will not, 
who will continue to harden their hearts, we ask, just as the psalmist did, just as David did, that you would cast them down so that we can live peaceably and work with our own hands and spread the gospel freely, that we can worship you together with your church. We thank you that you have in these times given us other ways to show our love to one another. But we desire that you would bring about the liberty that you have so beautifully laid out for us in your word. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the people that are listening online here. And we just pray that you would encourage them in their spirits, that you would build them up in their faith, that you would give them opportunities to present the gospel to someone in desperate need. There's so many folks suffering right now. Help us to be a reflection of the light and hope of your gospel to someone. We thank you for this time together, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.